go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're going to read the whole passage. The intent moving forward isn't to take off chunks this big, but uh, between where we're at last week and then next week, um, Bruce Henning from uh, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary will be here. I'll be gone at uh, Freeze Out, and uh, we'd already given him Acts 2. So we're like, okay, we've got to kind of make this work into, into one. So uh, we're going to kind of give an overview here of uh, Acts chapter 1, and uh, I know you'll be blessed. Uh, Bruce was with us back in the fall, and I uh, heard a lot of great things about him, so I'm uh, thankful that uh, he'll be here ministering again next week. I want to read the whole chapter here, Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And when they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was uh, in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Ekeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, 
one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, uh, and they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thank you for the book of Acts. I thank you for Luke, who so diligently, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, researched and guided and and preserved this history, our history, the story of the church, its beginning, and how you orchestrated all things to bring about this new movement, the new covenant, the blood of Christ. Proclaim his name and impact the world for Jesus Christ. So I pray that as we spend time in chapter 1 here today, that the book of Acts would have a powerful effect on us through the work of your spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you remember last week, we did a little bit of an overview. The book of Acts highlighting some of the themes, some of the uh, important uh, transitions and such through the book um, of Acts. We noted how Acts is part 2. It is a two-volume work, if you will, Uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, where Luke began recording the events of of, of the life and and ministry of Jesus, and then the book of Acts, uh, where it just carries right on to what happened after that. We're going to unpack that a little bit. Acts chapter 1 ultimately is about preparation, and I want us to continue to note the detail and the intentionality. We talked about last week how the church, the birth of the church and these events are all part of a well-executed, flawlessly, perfectly executed plan of Jesus Christ. And how, again, this is so significant and matters so much because Jesus is so intimately involved in this work and in this movement. So Acts chapter 1 really is about preparation. For what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2, where we'll be next week, the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, everything we're seeing in Acts chapter 1 is lining things up for that. And this is Jesus spending his last few days with his disciples, instructing him and so on. We're going to unplug or unpack this in a minute. But I want us to focus in on that, that that is so key, that this didn't just happen by accident. Okay, Jesus so intentionally preparing we find a lot of comfort in that, and meaning in that, and purpose. Um, I don't know how many of you, uh, Heyday? Anyone here play Heyday? Some of you, Lincoln raised his hand in first service. I was so, okay, some of you. Oh, yeah, all right. Um, so come see me after. I need some duct tape and screws to build my barn a little bit bigger, all right? So, um, but uh, my kids talked me into this. And Zach, um, over Christmas or something, put it on, I was at Christmas, Thanksgiving, I know, he put it on my iPad, which, that was great. The downside of that is I didn't get to follow through all of, like, the little, like, pop-ups that kind of actually tell you what you're supposed to do it, you know. So I started playing it, and then I'm wondering, like, why, well, how come I don't have any carrots anymore? I thought they just randomly appeared, and you were able to plant them, and, and, and all of this. And, like, so my kids, finally, they see my farm, and they're, like, laughing at me. <laughs> and they're like, Dad. And Zach's like, Dad, you have, like, like 
10 more fields that you could plant and you're not even using them. I'm like, how do I get them? I'm like, why don't I have carrots? And they're like, dad, you have to like plant. And then when you harvest, it doubles and then you plant again. I'm like, oh. So my farm was a wreck. And, and then I couldn't build. Like apparently there's a dock and I had like no money. And it would like literally two minutes, Zach had like, I'm going to sell this. I'm going to do this and this. And I went from like 6,000 coins to like 10,000 coins and I could buy a dock. How cool is that, right? Um, but my, my farm was dying. There was not a well-planned-out strategy on my part. And what I came to understand about heyday, you got to, like, think ahead. And you got to be like, okay, I need wheat so I can make cow food, so I can feed my cows, so I can get milk, so that I can make cookies and pancakes, so I can sell them, so I can make money, so I can build, you know, and you're like, ah, oh, kind of like how farming works, I guess, right? And I was a bad, I am a bad farmer, but my, my, my farm now, though, stop shaking your head, yes, I, they laugh at me when they look at my farm. My, my farm is starting to thrive, but I've had to be intentional, and think about it, right, and plan, and um, Jesus is not like Craig in his farm. The church Acts 1, this is so intentional. Again, it's not surprising coming from the mind of God, the wisdom of God, the strategy, the planning that's gone into this. Again, and what that makes us realize is that this has meaning and purpose and value because of how intimately connected Jesus is with this church. So let's look at chapter 1 and let's look how Jesus prepared his church and brought it all together. Right, you remember, uh, remember the A-team, the, the, uh, Hannibal, the A-team? What was his line at the end of like all the A-team episodes? I love it when a plan comes together, right? Always at the end, I love it when a plan comes together. Yeah, right? Jesus, <laughs> as this is unfolding, he's going, mm-hmm. the plan is coming together. And it's about to explode the day of Pentecost and the force of heaven through the church and the spirit is going to be unleashed. The plan comes together in Acts chapter 1. Let's look at some of the highlights here. Chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus' work and ministry continues. Don't miss this little word here in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, what? Began to do and teach. The gospel of Luke, it's all that Jesus began to do and teach. But what does this imply? That this part of the story, volume two, is what Jesus continues to do. And that's the truth we take away right here at the beginning. Jesus continues to work and teach and unfold his plan. This right here, us, we are part of the ongoing work of Jesus. Think about the significance of this. Jesus has not stopped doing. He has not stopped teaching even though he physically is not still here he's still accomplishing his purposes he's doing his work through the power of the spirit and the church and jesus gave the disciples a heads up especially john 14 and 16 two significant passages and a lot of conversation there where jesus is saying i have to go away i have to go away so i can send another like me so i can send the holy spirit to come and be your helper So Jesus had told them this was coming. He continues to be actively engaged with his church. We have what we need because he's prepared us. He's given us what we need. The risen Lord is still doing his thing. And remember, we saw this throughout the book of Acts. 
the direct interventions of Jesus. And I believe that today that Jesus is still guiding and leading his church. He's still involved through the power of his spirit directing us and guiding us. I find a lot of comfort in that, especially in the season that we're in, right? Jesus has not lost control of his church. He hasn't stopped doing things. He's continuing to guide and lead us and direct us. That's an awesome thing. So Jesus prepares his followers for the mission. You have this, um, oops, did I skip ahead on one? Jesus continued to, sorry, I lost my place there for a minute. So you see here how Jesus prepared them. At the beginning of Acts chapter 1, uh, he continues, as they, uh, as he gets ready to ascend, he spends the last 40 days after his resurrection, before he sends, uh, giving them instructions and equipping them regarding the kingdom of God. He gives them commands. Okay, in here, he's giving them their mission. And you see here, this broad topic, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. Uh, that's a broad thing. And I, you know, we don't know all, I wish we had those lessons too, right? Um, but he's equipping them. And he's telling them, you know, the kingdom of God, it means this is life under the rule of God. And, and so teaching about the kingdom of God and implies that and implies the, the mission of spreading the kingdom. And it also implies uh, re- realizing that the, 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 his return and, and all of these things are inherent in, in, in understanding uh, the kingdom of God. And Jesus is, is preparing them and coaching them. And I love this terminology here, Acts 1, verse 4, while staying with them. The literal translation of that is while taking salt together. But what it implies is is table fellowship. Jesus is there, again, talking about how intimately he cares about his church and the preparation. And he's sitting with his disciples, and he's talking about what is coming next, and he's he's equipping them. He cares that deeply. We know, you know, there on the Sea of Galilee, that one time he's sitting around a campfire eating fish together. Jesus cares about this. He cares about preparing his church. This is the king of kings, the creator, the Lord of lords, actively engaged, giving mission, giving us a job, the privilege of representing his name to the the nations. Jesus. I was encouraged. Zach played basketball, middle school basketball this year, and um, I have a new varsity coach over at at North Point. Justin Yoder is his name. And um, I was impressed. The very first practice, the tryouts, um, I looked down in the gym, and Justin Yoder, the varsity basketball coach, is there interacting with these seventh grade boys who are playing in his basketball program. And, uh, and he showed up again. I, I saw him again at another game, another practice. And after their last game, Justin was there watching these guys. At the, and then the game ended. He, he gathers. This is the varsity coach. Gathers these guys together. He's talking to them and encouraging them and congratulating them on a season. And I just remember thinking, how cool is that? That, that the varsity basketball coach isn't too big to care about these little seventh grade guys playing ball. Like, that, that's cool. It, it, it gives some meaning. And, and here's Jesus, right? The varsity coach with these, these disciples, ragtag group of disciples saying, hey, I'm, I'm valuing you. And here's the job I am giving you uh, to do. I love that. Man, Whatever happens, I know the spirit coming in Pentecost is a big, but these last, you think about, in, in 40 days, these guys were transformed from these bumbling, you know, dull guys, Jesus used that terminology, who, who were running away at the crucifixion, and now, look at them, Peter standing up and taking leadership here at the end of chapter 1, and what's about to unfold in Acts chapter 2 going forward, they were radically changed. The resurrected Christ 
what he was laying down for them. He prepares his church. He prepares. He's given us what we need through his commands, through our understanding of the kingdom and who he is. That's what we need, and we need to embrace that and understand that, and that helps equip us for our mission. Uh, Jesus assured his followers of his resurrection. This is emphasized here in verse 3. There are many proofs, convincing proofs of his resurrection. Think Thomas. Remember Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appealed to the disciples and then they're telling him about it and Thomas was like, I don't believe it. And then Jesus comes and he appears just for Thomas and says, Thomas, feel my side. The scars, my hands, feel it. Convincing proofs. It was important that they understood and fully brought in the fact that Jesus was alive. Right? The apostles, these early followers in the church today, we, we do not serve a dead Messiah. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Uh, Dan Schellenberg and I were talking about this between services. You read the book of Acts, everything, always, the messages, the sermons, the, 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 the witnesses, it all centers on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what the young church needed to root itself into, and this is what we still need to root ourselves into, that Jesus is alive, he is reigning. This is the basis of our hope. This is our motivation for serving in the midst of trial and persecution. I love this song by a guy named Shailin. It's called Jesus is Alive. You'll pick up on the theme pretty quick. Elvis is dead. Picasso is dead. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead. Marilyn Monroe is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Brando is dead. James Brown is dead. Princess Di and John Lennon are dead. Biggie and Pac are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. Buddha is dead. Mohammed is dead. Gandhi and Hali Selassie are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Nero is dead. Constantine is dead. Genghis Khan is dead. Attila the Hun is dead. Alexander the Great is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Napoleon is dead. Che Guevara is dead. Henry VIII is dead. Saddam Hussein is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Pharaoh is dead. Cyrus is dead. Darius and Sennacherib are dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Caesar is dead. Herod is dead. Annas is dead. Caiaphas is dead. Judas is dead. Pontius Pilate is dead. However, Jesus is alive. He's the only one. He's the only one. The resurrection. Nobody can put their faith in any human being who's ever lived because they're all dead. Jesus is alive. And this was central to the early church's mission. There's no resurrection. There's no resurrection. There's no confidence that God accepted Christ's sacrifice. There's no confidence of a new creation. There's no intercessor for us in heaven. There is no victory over death. There is no confidence in his reign. These men, these 12 men, history tells us that all but one of them died for their faith, died a martyr's death. Why? Because they had a future hope in a resurrection. They knew that they weren't believing in a lie. They trusted in the resurrection Christ Their thought process was, if Christ was raised, we will be raised. We will be like him in his resurrection. I can die and give my life for the gospel because Jesus died. He was raised, I'll be raised. Right? Peter, I'm sorry, Paul adopted this thinking, right? 1 Corinthians 
Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sin. The those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If in Christ we have no hope, I'm sorry, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, <laughs> We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Second Corinthians says this, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Why does Paul say we do not lose hope? Because the resurrection happens. Why can the church endure persecution and say these are light and momentary problems? Because the resurrection happened. So we can pour out our lives knowing that this is not the end game. Right? Remember when I was a kid playing video games, the old Atari. One of the tragic things, what, what, what cost me so many joysticks growing up was the fact that you got to like level 66 and died what happened when next time you played the game? You're starting at one again, and it was so maddening, right? Kids today have it so easy, right? Because what happens today in Mario? You die, you get a continuation, right? Oh, I can just continue. So, so when I, I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like, you, you mean like I don't lose everything? Like, no, you just get to keep going. Like, how cool is that? So then I play the video game differently. Now I can play with a little bit more reckless abandon. Like, who cares if the, the, you know, the plant with the jaws eats me? I'll just be reborn right here. I can keep playing. All right? Like, that wasn't the case with the Atari days. Everything was on the line, right? <laughs> the resurrection is like that. It's like the continuation. I can play. I don't have to fear dying I don't have a fear of losing everything. I have a continuation in the kingdom. Right? That's why the resurrection matters. So take away so far, right, for these first couple of points. God equips his church. God's given us all the information we need. Given us all the preparation we need in his teaching about himself and his kingdom. How else does Jesus prepare his church? Right here. Jesus orders his followers to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Talked about this a little bit last week, right? He orders them. This is our commander. This is the role he has, and this is our role. We listen to his orders. He gives them this order so that they will give and be given what they need to carry out the work of his ministry. Waiting was the first act of the church. And waiting stinks <laughs> sometimes, right? Waiting is hard. I hate to wait. I'm guessing most of you do as well. But it's so 
important that we don't get ahead of God and his program. And that was being communicated to the church early on. You can't do this on your own. You go and you wait for me to send the Spirit. And we need to continue to take that lesson, waiting on the Lord, seeking his guidance, not doing it in our own strength. Now, waiting doesn't equate to not doing, and we'll unpack that here in just a moment. The early church, they did something while they waited, right? But again, they're told to wait. Wait for what? Wait for, wait, wait, wait for the promise. We already talked about this. John 14, John 16. Check out those passages later. Jesus told them why they needed to wait already in those passages. And if you look, I gave you a bunch of Old Testament references as well. Throughout the Old Testament, that the arrival of the Spirit proclaims the beginning of a new era. This was a significant moment in, in church history. And the coming of the Spirit was going to start this new movement and redemptive history. So go and wait for the Spirit. Things are coming. Things are about to change. Power is coming. And a force is going to be unleashed on the earth. But wait for it. Again, and when you connect that to all these Old Testament passages, again, you see that this movement that you are a part of is so significant. It's part of a well-designed perfectly executed plan. For thousands of years, the coming of the Spirit was proclaimed. That moment came in Acts chapter 2, and we're a part of that. The promise is the Spirit's powerful presence that we see there in verse 8. You receive power. You'll be baptized by the Spirit, he says here in these verses. You'll be baptized. It's, it, that word baptized, it's this overwhelming pouring out. Like, you ever go to like, the, the water parks? I love to do this. They've got, like, they got like, the big bucket or something in the middle of the play area, and they wait, have to like, wait 20 minutes. It fills up with water, and then the bells go off, and it, and it dumps, and all the kids stand underneath it. You know? And there's like little Zach. It comes like, and Zach's like, we're like, where did Zach go? You know, like, um, you know, but, but it comes, this great water wave. And you're under it, and it feels awesome, you know, it's pushing you down. You're like, ah, you know. And that, that, that's, that's the terminology here. The Spirit is like washing down on you, pouring out on you, overwhelming you. Here he is. Wait for that. I, I love this too. And we'll talk about this question here in just a minute. But the disciples, when Jesus in the midst of him talking about the Spirit, right, they say, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And I, I love this because Jesus doesn't give them in his answer, he doesn't give them what they think they need. Right? They think they need information. Jesus doesn't give them what they think they need. He gives them what they truly need. The Spirit. You think you need information. No, no, no. We give you power. We give you the Spirit. By the way, it's another significant link. We talked about this a little bit last week. Fruitful and multiply, the theme throughout Acts. Again, the, the continuity of Scripture is so incredible. There's only a few times in Scripture, you, you read of the Spirit coming upon people often, but, um, but the Spirit coming and hovering there's only a few times where it's actually Genesis 1, spirit hovers, the face of the deep, creation, right? Mary, spirit comes upon, hovers her, same word, right? Birth of Christ. The baptism of Jesus, the spirit comes down upon, hovers. Acts chapter 2, spirit coming. Man, that's significant. The direct involvement of God Spirit, when he shows up in this way that Jesus is talking about, it's a significant move in redemptive history. And here we are, the church, this is a significant move in redemptive history. 
Let's go back to their question for a minute. Let's skip that for now. Jesus reorients his followers to what matters most by declaring their purpose and their commission, right? So again, we have this question, is this when the kingdom will be restored to Israel? And Jesus says, not for you to know. In other words, he's saying, don't worry about that. Don't worry about when. There's something else you need to worry about right now. We, we do this as parents with our kids sometimes, right? Like, well, what about this? And we're like, that's not your problem. <laughs> don't worry about that right now. Your, your problem is your messy room. You go clean your room. But dad, what about, no, no, no. don't worry about that. Don't worry about what your brother's doing. Don't worry about what your sister's doing. You go do what I told you to do, right? And this is kind of what Jesus is doing here. Like, guys, you're asking the wrong Listen, that's not your problem. Don't worry about that. This is what you need to worry about. I'm going to give you something right here, right? He's not saying to not think about the end, per se. Right? Throughout Scripture, we're always told to think about the return of Christ. But he's just telling them, don't be excessively concerned about it, trying to figure it all out. Instead of being worried about the end... They're about to be equipped to do their mission of carrying out the gospel. So Jesus doesn't exactly refute their question or even really chastise them for asking. In essence, what he does is he takes their question and then he broadens it and he extends it. Right? I'm not going to tell you when this is going to You want to talk about the restoration of the kingdom? Yeah, actually, it is going to happen. It's just bigger beyond what you're thinking. You're thinking just Israel. No, the end game now is the world. Geographical and ethnic expansion of the gospel. They're thinking too narrowly. They're not thinking missionally here. So Acts 1.8 is going to be a jolt to them. The kingdom of Israel? No, no, no. No, it's, it's bigger than that now. Go to the world. This is echoes of Jonah. Let's just not worry about ourselves right here, Jonah. Go. Nineveh. It's the same thing. With the commission in verse 8, Jesus completely reorients their perspective and what their mission is about. He says, you will be my witnesses. There's no option here. You will be my witnesses. This is the concern. And you see this throughout Acts 2.32. We are all witnesses. Acts 3.15. You killed Jesus. God raised him up. We are witnesses of this. Acts 10.39, we are witnesses to all that he did. Acts 22.15, you will be witnesses of what you have seen and heard. So Christianity, this isn't about being a good person or learning more theology. It's about bearing witness to Christ and making disciples. It's about taking that knowledge that I have. Yes, I want to be a good person and obey the commands of God. Yes, I'm not understating that. But, but if that's the end goal of my Christianity, then I'm missing the points. Even as I raise my kids, I don't want to be content with just, just having good kids. I have good kids. Well, it's good. It's great. But I want missional kids. I want them to think bigger, right? Our church, Christianity is about Bearing witness to Christ. And we can get caught up in the same type of thinking of the disciples, right? Do we think missionally or do we think about our own wants and desires when it comes to the church? Is it, is it about me? Or do I need a focus change? Focusing outward, having a heart for the world. The fact that these are la- Jesus' last recorded words when he was on earth indicate their importance. It's the last thing he said to his disciples before he ascended, right? Nikayev was a, uh, he had a role in assassinating Tsar Alexander II in Russia. And this is what he said 
about a revolution. He said, the revolutionary man is a consecrated man. He has neither his own interests nor concerns nor feelings, no attachment nor property, not even a name. All for him is absorbed in a single exclusive interest in the one thought, revolution. Uh, the commentator, R. Kent Hughes, writes this, reflecting on Nikayev's words. He says, although his motives and goals were wrong, Nikayev stated well the heartbeat of true commitment, the kind needed to accomplish the objectives of the church. And I love this, uh, this, this description of the church. God's missile of salt and light hurled into the world to proclaim the triumphant message of sins forgiven and lives transformed. Too often we are overly concerned about personal comfort. If the Christian faith is worth believing at all, it is worth believing heroically. Love that. Hughes goes on to say this, if we are to be effective witnesses for our Savior, we cannot be water boys in the game of life. We have to roll up our sleeves and pitch in. Our lives must display the inner reality of what we externally proclaim. That is why the gospel flames raced across Asia. The apostles walked their talk. That is why Paul was able to reach the Praetorian guards while under house arrest in Philippi. Are we witnesses like that? So he prepared us by giving us a mission. Jesus ascends and his return is promised. Again, this is part of the preparation for the mission, for the coming of the Spirit. The ascension vindicates Jesus and places him in a place of authority in heaven at the right hand of God. Acts 2.33, right? It says Jesus is at God's side. He has ascended to administrate. Jesus continued, right? He's continuing his work. So now he's reigning from a place of power. I find great hope in that. That Jesus is at the right hand of God, ascended and reigning. Then you have the promise of his return. This serves as a source of hope and motivation. It says the disciples are standing there, their gaze fixed, their intent. I'm sure there's a whole lot of emotions here. Probably thrilled at what they just saw. Sadness, they missed their friend. What do we do next? (laughs) Question we ask here, what do we do next? And angels come right away to comfort them. They speak a promise. The same Jesus is coming back. In absence of presence, cling to a promise. We do that as the people of God. There is comfort. Jesus is coming back. I think there's also a tinge of rebuke here. <laughs> Why are you guys just standing around? <laughs> Stop. Just stand around. Look at him. Go. He gave you a job. Go. Go do it. But the reality of his return is meant to motivate us, encourage us. I'll never forget as a kid, my, my, our children's ministry leader, Mike Martin was his name. And about second grade is when God called their family from Massachusetts, moved to Arizona. And I remember Mike, they came by with their moving truck the day that they were driving out of town. They stopped at our house to say goodbye, and Mike got down. I was standing in the front yard of my house. He gets down on one knee, looks me right in the eye, and he says, Craig, listen to me. I'm leaving. You keep following Jesus, and I want to hear that you're fine. I want to hear that you're memorizing the verses that are part of this program. I want to hear you getting those achievements, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to check up on you, but I want you to do that. And I was like, yeah, and I never forgot that. And I remember when I was sixth grade and I ended that program, I remember thinking, I did it, Mike. I did it, you know. Jesus is doing it. He's coming back. But he said, like, in the meantime, you do what I've called you to do. I'm going to come back. Right. 
said a minute ago that they didn't just go back and wait and do nothing. They also prepared themselves for the mission. They obeyed by going back to Jerusalem. Right? Effective and powerful ministry oftentimes is not rocket science. Simple obedience to Christ's commands really goes a long way. They gathered, about 120 of them. They gathered. Again, we can never overstate the importance of the church gathered. This is an important thing. They were unified. They were unified. If you have the right translation, right, it's, or it says they were in one accord. I, I, I have to. My kids are going to roll their eyes, right? Uh, the official car of the early church. Um, they were in one accord. <laughs> oh, man, the looks I'm getting from the front row. Um, they were devoted to prayer. No, there's a connection. How does a church stay unified? They pray together. Devoted means they continue to do it. They're committed to it. They persevere in prayer. Prayer leads to Peter's understanding of Scripture. It's the context of prayer that leads Peter to get up and direct. And the choice of Matthias was done in the context of prayer. And they chose Judas's replacement. They chose Judas's replacement. One side note here, it says that they cast lots. I just want to say that that's not normative for today. There's only two times in the New Testament casting lots happened. One was by the Romans at the foot of Jesus' cross, and this is the other time. And most commentators observe that after the coming of the Spirit, there's no longer a need to cast lots. The church had what it needed to discern the will of God, right? We don't have time to unpack all of this, but you do have what I call the Judas parenthesis here at the end. Luke feels necessary to talk about Judas for a minute. Luke, I'm going to ask you to come on up. We'll get ready to sing this song. Judas's defection was a fulfillment of Scripture. Peter points that out, that his defection was fulfillment of Scripture. Again, another reminder that God is the one calling the shots in all of this. Even in the betrayal, God is acting. And here's the other thing, that Judas's actions did not halt God's plan. Right? There's a graphic display here of Judas's fate. I think it's probably intentional to leave a vivid impression of what awaits the enemies of God. The psalms that are used here are psalms that are directed at an enemy, that David directs at his enemy. This is what happens to the unrighteous. The days of those who oppose Christ are few. This is also the first negative example of a follower of Christ in Acts, and I think this is serving as a warning. Judas was with Christ. He had position. He was with the apostles. It's sobering. That one could have that and still walk away. We see the consequences of unfaithfulness and betrayal to the cause of Christ. Right? Again, it communicates. We can grow up in this. We can be surrounded by this all the time and still be outside of Christ and turn aside like Judas did, appearing to be a follower but not really. General Douglas MacArthur, when he left his post, he says, I'm closing my 52 years of military service. When I joined the army, even before the turn of the century, it was the fulfillment of all my boyish hopes and dreams. The world has turned over many times since I took the oath on the plane at West Point, and the hopes and dreams have long since vanished, but I still remember the refrain of one of the most popular barrack ballads of that day, which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And like the old soldier of that ballad, I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light to see that duty. Goodbye. That's a farewell speech. 
Jesus didn't give a farewell speech in Acts chapter 1. That's not a farewell speech that Jesus gives. It's a commencement. I'm not fading away. Jesus did not fade away. He continues to do his work in us and through us. Feel the weight of that. Go and minister in the strength and power of knowing that. And watch God transform the world through us. He's given us everything we need. Even though there are days that we don't feel like it. And trust me, there's a lot of them. But he's still there.